Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 49. I have some of the verses on your outline. You do have to have uh, your Bible open, though. We'll look at the first 13 verses. I've decided to take chapter 49 in two parts. Um, the overall declaration of the prophet by the Spirit is, I am the Lord your Savior. That's the message to us as it was to the Israelites of old. Now, I would like to say congratulations to you because you have so far survived Ice Storm Jupiter safely as you come into the Lord's house with the Lord's people, sheltered in this wonderful place. Um, It's not over yet, so be careful on your way home for sure, but um, it is truly a blessing to have us here. And I bet you, you have seen some people you think are visitors, but they're probably people that either went to the 11 o'clock or the 8.30 that you didn't know Um, We're part of your church, so that's one of the blessings of having this one service together, and I hope you are friendly to those faces you don't recognize. You might learn that about each other. Um, Today we've come to a a chapter that introduces another of the servant songs in Isaiah. There are four. They start in chapter 42, and four of them are laced throughout the end of the book. We're into the final third of this great prophecy of Isaiah. And these servant songs are designed to give glimpses of the work of the Messiah who would come. Now, for the people first receiving this message, they were in a, in a state of worry and anxiety over their future because they were heading towards exile. Babylon was rising. Babylon would soon take them and bring them back uh, and disperse the Israelites all over the east. And so... Isaiah is giving prophecy during his ministry to prepare the people for their time of exile. So when they were in exile, they would remember the great promises of God and they would trust in God for his salvation. In chapter 48, God made clear that he would fulfill his covenant of salvation. He would not go back on his word. It was a matter of God's commitment to God that makes sure that we have security. God's commitment to himself is the reason we can be assured that he will do what he says he will do. Now to chapter 49, we get some specifics about how he will keep covenant. More particularly, who will keep covenant in our place since we fail. There's the first Adam who fails, and then he sends the second Adam, Jesus, in our stead. There is Israel, who is supposed to be the chosen people of God, who God promises unconditionally many things. But he gives them conditions too, and they fail in those conditions. Um, They lose favor on the basis of their behavior, and God raises one Israelite to be the representative for the rest of us who would not break covenant. And that's his servant, his holy one, his Messiah to come. And that's who we have painted for us in these verses. I will read the first seven verses of chapter 49, but as I mentioned, keep your Bibles open to chapter 49 because we will examine through to verse 13. Hear God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me, He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. 
But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Let's bow together as I lead us in a word of prayer. Lord God, what a wonderful glimpse of your salvation through your perfect servant, our Savior, the Lord Jesus himself. Father, we can be prone to doubt. We are tempted to wonder about your love for us. Please send your Holy Spirit so that we will understand the passage of Scripture before us and be renewed in our faith and encouraged in our walk with you. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Once again, we look at a passage written 700 years before the servant himself came, the Lord Jesus. The message is meant to encourage people who are doubting God's favor for them. They know what the promises of God have said, but due to their circumstances outwardly, they're having inward doubts. They're concerned with God's love and commitment for them. Does he really love them? That's a timeless temptation for us to feel as though God doesn't love us. Something outwardly happens to you. You're going through something that's inexplicable. And you wonder if God loves you, if he cares for you. Now, if we base God's love for us on something we think is inherent to ourselves, that insecurity will only get worse for good reason. You hear a lot of the message today, you know, believe in yourself. You have to love yourself. Think, respect yourself. And even in Christian talk, you'll hear that. And it sort of builds up this false security in self that perhaps feeds into the idea that part of why God loves us or is committed to us is because we're lovable or we're lovely. That may feel good to say, but when we analyze it, Inwardly, we know it's not true. It's sort of like this. A few weeks ago, Sherry and I went out uh, on a date night and went to a play, had dinner. Just a lovely evening. We were dressed nice. Uh, We looked at each other and thought how lovely we both are. And uh, we came home that night. And the next morning, I woke up and walked in front of the mirror. My mom's laughing harder than anybody else. I mean, I admit things ain't getting better when I look in the mirror. I mean, she still loves me, but wow, why? I mean, ee. I mean, there's an insecurity that kind of comes over you when you really look at yourself honestly. It's not very good looking. 
It doesn't get better looking with age. There's an insecurity that you would have about yourself if the basis for your relationship was on some merit of your own or the way you look lovely. I think we recognize that insecurity, especially in a world that focuses so much on the physical appearance of people, right? Well, I I think for Christians that we can struggle sometimes with insecurity with God. Outward circumstances don't go the way we'd expect. And then we just wonder, does God love us? And then we start to analyze ourselves in the quietness of our hearts. We know who we are. And we know we're not lovable. We know we're not lovely. And we get concerned. This message understands that. And this message wants to tell you, Christian, you can be sure of God's love, but it's not because of you. God's love to you is sure because God is a promise keeper and he loves the one who kept promise on our behalf. It's his love for the servant. It's God the Father's love for God the Son And when you're in the Son, you're as secure as the Son is in the Father. How secure is that? You can't get any more secure than that. Whatever you feel like with regard to God's accepting you, throw that out because God loves His Son. And if you trust in His Son, if you rest in His Son, then you are loved by the Father in words I can't use to describe. It has nothing to do with your loveliness. It has everything to do with the loveliness of the servant. And that's what we have laid before us 700 years before the servant even came. All of our blessings come from the unfailing commitment of God to our faithful representative, the servant, the anointed one, the Messiah. Let's look at the passage and we'll see how it unfolds. Again, this whole chapter and a few verses into chapter 50 cover this topic. I'll take just the first first 13 verses today. First, we see the servant in this second servant song in Isaiah introducing himself to the world, if you will. Verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands. This is the servant speaking. And give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. The servant of the Lord we know is Christ as it unfolds in the book. He addresses his audience. And notice it's not just Judah. Not just the Jews here. This is a worldwide declaration given by the servant. Verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. The servant would have authoritative, prophetic words to speak. They'd have a sharpness and and an effect. He would be blessed and watched over by God himself. And notice the figurative language used by Isaiah. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, is said of the servant. Later in the book of Revelation... In his right hand, speaking of Jesus, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This picture of Christ, vivid in Isaiah, is, is fulfilled for us in Revelation. Later in Revelation 19, verse 15, from his mouth, Christ, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Verse 2 in our passage, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. And notice verse 3, how it identifies Jesus. And, and don't be mistaken by what is said. We'll see in the context how this is clearly Christ. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Now we know he's not talking about the nation here. Jesus as representative, as covenant representative of Israel. This unfolds as the passage unfolds. 
He said to me, you are my servant Israel. Remember, God made a covenant with Israel. Israel, the nation, failed at this. But God, the Son, as the perfect representative, upholds covenant. And so all who are in him are true Israel. This is an important underlying concept in the whole of the Old Testament, fulfilled and explained in the New. Jesus is the covenant guarantee. In fact, he's called the covenant later. We'll see this. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. People often misunderstand God's commitment to the nation of Israel. I touched on this a few weeks ago. Recognize what the Old Testament displays. God calls Israel out of the nations unconditionally. He calls Abraham, and then he starts to cultivate a nation. He calls them, he gives them people, then eventually gives them law, and he gives them land. They're a nation. We know this. But he also told Abraham back when he called him that his purpose was to bless all the nations. Never was it to be just about one ethnic group. And so he develops Israel as a way to host the eventual servant or Messiah who would be the fulfillment of it all. But recognize there are certain aspects that were unconditional. He said, I'm going to do this not because you're lovely, but because I am going to glorify my name. And he gives all sorts of success, really unconditional success to Israel throughout this period. But there are conditional aspects for sure, and this is where Israel fails and where Jesus succeeds. For instance, when the second giving of the law was happening, that's what Deuteronomy means. Um, Listen to what God says to Israel. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and, and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. You can't get any more conditional than that. And you can't get any more obvious that they failed at that than Isaiah when they're ready to be taken by Babylon. They're not rising over Babylon. They're being taken by Babylon. And later in Deuteronomy 28 verse 15. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command to you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. You see, the nation itself failed in the fundamental elements of obedience. Christ succeeds and becomes the guarantee, becomes the covenant. We must be in him to be the real Israel. To be the people of God, we must be in the person, the God-man himself, the servant. This is an important, important understanding for us to have as we recognize uh, what God does in redemption, especially as it comes into the New Testament. All of our blessings, all the blessings of anybody who is a Christian. They come from the unfailing commitment of God to our faithful representative, the servant, the Messiah. Look at verse 4 and verse 5, and you will see the servant revealing what his mission is. Now recognize this is the second of four servant songs. Each one of these songs develops a little more of the picture of who Jesus is. So it's somewhat cursory, but you know how this is fulfilled. Verse 4 says, but I said, I have labored in vain. This is the servant speaking. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Speaking or forecasting the the frustration that would come to the Messiah as he comes to intercede for the people of Israel first, on the first level. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with God. Though frustrated, like we see Jesus in his earthly ministry, we see him also recognize his mission. 
though he may overthrow tables, recognizing what the temple had become, he at the same time stays fixed on the cross that he must go to. The servant reveals this, you might say, divine frustration with his immediate mission to Judah, but understands that he has the hand of God upon him. Now, it's been a couple weeks, but back in Isaiah 48, there was a section at the very beginning of those passages that I read to you, and it talked about how God was calling out the Israelites because they were saying they were effectively Christians or they were effectively God's people, yet they weren't really inside. They were saying it outwardly, but inwardly it wasn't true. And listen to the exact wording of that verse back in Isaiah 48. Hear, O house of Jacob, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. It wasn't real. Not in truth or right. But now look at the passage before us. Verse 4. The servant's talking about himself in Isaiah 49. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Unlike the people who spoke outwardly but it wasn't inwardly true, the servant is utterly true. Favored by God, sent by God, even empowered by God as we'll see. The servant was right with God. The servant, despite the rejection that he experienced from Judah, that he calls vanity in verse 4, he was still God's anointed one. Alec uh, Moitier says, Isaiah foresaw a servant with a real human nature, tested like we are in proving himself to be the author and perfecter of the way of faith, a real personal faith that can still say, my God, when nothing any longer seems worthwhile. The mission of the servant is clear. Look at verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring, back, bring Jacob back to him, to buy back Jacob, Jacob enslaved out of slavery, to redeem Jacob. It's a, a, a mission of redemption. That's the point. He's come to redeem. Verse 5. And that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. So on the first level, you have this picture of the servant's clear mission to come and to redeem, to bring Jacob back, to gather Israel to himself. As scripture unfolds, we learn the label Israel here means more than the ethnic group, as I have mentioned. The mission of the servant is to redeem for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. All of the blessings that come to us, that we receive, all of them, your sense of salvation, your sure assurance of it, um, the realities that God gives us so many things. He sustains us. He provides for us. Paul talks about every spiritual blessing that is ours. All of our blessings come from the unfailing commitment of God to our faithful representative here pictured, the servant, the Messiah. Look at verse 6. We see now God the Father entering this picture. To this point, it's the servant speaking, the servant announcing himself to the world, not just to the Jews, the servant revealing his mission, it's to redeem. Now we have God, God the Father, you could say, confirming his acceptance and support of the servant. God the Father confirming God the Son here is what we have. Verse 6. 
He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. In other words, it's not enough that you would say this. This is what the father says to the son. It's not enough. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Do you see what's going to happen here? It's not just about the Jews. It's not a, you're bigger. The, the Messiah's mission is bigger than just these people. I, verse 6, will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In other words, I'm going to complete the exact promise I gave to Abraham, and it's going to come through you. He promised Abraham the nations would be blessed. He fulfills it by Jesus. That's what we have laid so beautifully before us as the father speaks to the servant, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Not limited to one group. The picture in Revelation is every tribe and every tongue will be represented crying out to the lamb who is worthy, the servant, the Messiah. Verse 7, we have God the Father stating his acceptance of Messiah's worldwide mission of redemption. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. I don't believe this is meant to be three repetitions of God the Father. Thus says the Lord, I think it's meant to say, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. God and his Messiah. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Now this is the first time in the servant songs you start to get a picture of part of what the servant will have to do. If you're just reading it the first time and you're in 700 BC and you're reading this message from Isaiah, you might not have the picture we know because we have the hindsight of Jesus' coming and the New Testament interpretation. We know that when the servant comes, that he has to do a work of redemption that would cause him great shame. It would cause him great humiliation, pain, and suffering. And then from that place, as he is approved by his father in real time, he is seated at the right hand of the father, and he rules from there until the nations are made a footstool. It'll come back from there, and and full consummation of salvation will be realized, and redemption in all its glory. But we know there's two parts to that. Uh, And you start to get a glimpse of that a bit. And Isaiah certainly lays it out for us as we get into the other songs. But here, look at verse 7 again. And you start to see something of what the work of the servant will look like. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. But notice the exaltation that the Father will give to the Son despite his treatment Really, in light of his humiliation, we realize later, as he pays the price, as he keeps covenant, he pays price for the covenant. Kings, kings, verse 7 says, shall see and arise. Princes. And they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. God promises exaltation for his servant. He may be mistreated when he is on earth, but his ultimate end will be glory. Kings will lay before him. Messiah will be successful because God the Father will support his work. The will and the power 
of the Father promises the work of redemption is successful by the Son. God loves his servant, Messiah. Later in the New Testament, there's several passages I could cite. But one of the most vivid happens in Matthew chapter 3. After Jesus is baptized, he's not baptized for the remission of sins or the picture of the remission of sins like we are. He was baptized as a way of describing the beginning of his public ministry. Um, He was the worthy representative, and now he had to step into public light and fulfill all these various prophecies of the miracles he would do, the teaching he would provide, and the sacrifice he would make. So as he is baptized, and he comes from the water, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The picture now is the Trinity there speaking on earth. The Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God's covenantal commitment to Christ, his love for his Son, is the assurance of our blessing. You remember the last part of John 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus? He says to Nicodemus, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. It's a beautiful picture of God confirming his acceptance and support for the servant's work that we find in Isaiah chapter 49 before us. And then we see it play out perfectly in the New Testament with everything Jesus does, the Father approving. And the ultimate sign of the approval of the Son is when he raises him again from the dead. Yes, I accept this work. You, the covenant guarantor. And he raises his son from the dead. This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. Here's the point, and we'll come back to this point. This is why you know God loves you. If you trust Christ, if you rest on Christ, God does not look and see you. He sees Jesus, and he loves you because of him. And he never stops loving you. Well, I don't look too good. No, you don't. But you look like Christ to him. Because he's placed you in Christ. God the Father loves God the Son. That's why, no matter what you feel like, you're in him. God's covenantal commitment to Christ is the assurance of our blessing. And this is the message that Isaiah is trying to relay to those first listeners and to us these many years later. I want you to see something else in verses 8 through 13. A bit of what will lead into the rest of this chapter and a little bit into chapter 50 as well. We see how we are redeemed and the blessings that flow from that redemption. It's not just a matter of being saved from eternal punishment. That is for sure. But we are redeemed and we're blessed in manifold ways. And the reason we're blessed is because of God's acceptance of our representative. God's acceptance of the servant. Starting in verse 8. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. He's talking the Father to the Son now. I will give you as a covenant to the people. To establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages. And we come to see as this unfolds, it's so much more than just a little sliver of land called Palestine. Much more than that. 
the servant called a covenant, a surety. He's a guarantee of salvation. Ray Ortland says wonderfully, he is himself the very embodiment of God's pledge of grace to us. He is how God pours out favor upon us and how we are bound to God in return. It's the lamest talk ever when people just talk generally about, oh, God loves all, everybody. God, God only loves through Christ. We have to be in Christ. That's how God can love, given our sin. Christ has to be brought into any speaking of God's love to us. And this is what we have when he says, I will give you as a covenant to the people. It's very personal. It's very specific. It's totally intentional. It's pointed. This is why Jesus took the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant in my blood. All the covenantal teaching uh, and leading of the Old Testament is bound up in that moment when Jesus says, I, essentially, I'm the covenant. I'm the reason God can accept you. The inheritance of God's people is based on the servant Messiah. Verse 9, we see the benefits pour out from this redemption that's provided by our covenant guarantee. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. So in verse 9, he will free us. We're prisoners before. He will give us sight because we're blind without him. He will feed us because we're hungry. And he will nourish us in an ongoing way. Verse 9, just a few of the blessings that come from our redemption. And a redemption is because of God's acceptance of our representative. Verse 10, they shall not hunger or thirst. This is they being us, his people. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. So some more benefits. He will provide ongoing care and sustenance for us, his children. He will protect us from the elements. He will lead us because we're lost otherwise. He will lead us to a place of safety and nurture. He will provide us guardianship. These are all the benefits of the redemption purchased by our representative. Verse 11, And I will make all my mountains a road. My mountains, the ones I've created that you cannot scale, They are an impediment to your travel. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Places that could not be traversed now can be traveled upon. That's the picture of the benefit we have through Christ. Where there were impediments that would not allow us to advance, these obstacles are removed through Christ. Moitir says once again, wisely, the Lord sovereignly manages everything, even to the extent that mountains, which might seem insurmountable, can be approached with confidence. Who will benefit again? Verse 12. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Now, there is some comments, some commentary, I should say, about why he doesn't mention the east here. The north and the west and Syene. Syene may be the east. We don't know where it is exactly. It could be that The Jews are in the east. They're in Babylon when this text applies to them. So it's to be sure that this is not just about the salvation of ethnic Jews. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, 
these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. What do we do because we are redeemed and have all these benefits? We worship. Look at verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. I am the Lord your Savior is the message title. Those exact words are spoken soon in the text. But you can see our song, our worship displays for the Lord has comforted his people. And he will have compassion on the afflicted. Again, brothers and sisters, it's common for Christians to sometimes doubt the love of God for them. There's lots of stuff that happens in your life and it swallows things up. Even though we hear this now and we, we, we say amen and we, we, it helps us, no question. The reason why we come every week, by the way, is because we need to hear it again. Because you know what happens between now and, and the next time we come together? So many things in life happen and it is easy for us to fall in to this sense of, of orphan being orphans, that God doesn't love us. He hasn't remembered us. And this is where we come back to what it says before us, and it promises us once again that our blessings, all of our blessings, they come from the unfailing commitment of God to our faithful representative. Is Christ your representative? That's the question you have to answer. How can he be your representative? In John chapter 3, God so loved the world... And this is a direct reference to it. It wasn't just Nicodemus and the Jews. It's right to what Isaiah says, that he came for people in all tribes and tongues. That's what he means by world here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life in him. That's how Christ is your representative, by believing on him. This is why Jesus says in the 14th chapter of John, I am the way, I am the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we know why that is as we read Isaiah. We have to come through Christ. He is the accepted servant. It makes total sense in that context. I love when the Philippian jailer just watches a miracle happen, but he's worried that he's going to be in trouble because his prisoners are loosed by this miraculous earthquake. And all the jailer could say, it's a very good question, what must I do to be saved? And the apostles sat him down, pulled out an overhead, and walked through a systematic theology with him so he would really grip it. He got them to memorize the catechism. Right? No, no, you know that's not what it is. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's how Christ is our representative. That's how we are loved by God. That's how we are secure. That's how even when we don't feel love, we still are. Believing in him trusting in him, relying on, uh, in him, resting upon him. We're placed in what's called union with Jesus. And I love how Louis Burkhoff puts it. That intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people. By virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength, of, the, of their blessedness and salvation. Yes, my dear Christians, you can be absolutely certain for God's love and faithfulness to you. I just kind of poke fun at the apostles pulling out the catechism to show him. He might have done that on the second time they met. And maybe if it were there at the time, 
Of course, the apostles, being the apostles, wouldn't need this like we do. But question 60 of the Heidelberg is so helpful here. How are you righteous before God? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, though my conscience accused me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and kept none of them and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never had nor committed any sin and myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ had rendered for me, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. All of our blessings come from the unfailing commitment of God to our faithful representative, Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, you prayed for us in John 17 with words that give us such assurance. You prayed, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Lord God, I pray for every believer today so assure them of your love through Christ that they become more steadfast in their obedience, less fearful of the world in its, its things and its stuff and its happenings, and more emboldened to proclaim Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us together respond by turning to 447. 447. 